uh, that you have in front of you? Um, how do we know that this is really what the Word of God is? How do, we, how do we know that this is, you know, that all these books are, uh, in fact, God's Word? And then how can we be confident that uh, what we have today is uh, truly the Word of God, uh, given the amount of years that have gone by? So we're going to look at that. We're going to look at some dates and things like that, but we are going to, uh, you know, eventually get into to the Word and see what it, it has to say about these things. Uh, but before we begin, let me ask the Lord for some enablement here. Father, we come to you and we ask, Lord, that you would enable us uh, to hear your word, to be attentive, Lord, to be receptive and humble before uh, the teaching of your holy scriptures, Lord. I pray for myself, Lord, as your servant, that you would enable me uh, to be clear and understandable and yet uh, practical for the, the needs, the daily needs and lives of your sheep, Lord. I pray, Lord, that you would bless this time, even as it feels a little bit more like a classroom setting for this specific class. I, I pray that it would still be a blessing uh, overall. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we're uh, looking at uh, a few questions this morning regarding the canon. Uh, what is the canon? We're going to define the, the term and then... Um, how we came to get it, we're going to answer, uh, how did we get the canon? And then how do we know what the canon is in front of us? How, do we, how can we have that confidence that what we have in front of us is the canon of Scripture? So, definition of canon. It's not the big, uh, the big uh, you know, uh, uh, weapon that fires a, you know, a cannonball. No, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, it, this word canon comes from the Greek word kanon, uh, K-A-N-O-N, if you want to bring it over into English. Uh, the Greek word means uh, a ruler or a staff, uh, an instrument of measurement. Uh, in, in those days, it was like a measuring rod or... Um, a, uh, a reed, a stick that had markings on it that you would use to measure things and to know, understand how, how long uh, an item is. It's used, uh, it was used in Greek times uh, for, uh, for the norm. So you can understand how, you know, even today, um, we have words like... Um, there's a, um, let's see, there, there's, a, there's a measurement, right? We, we have a word like measurement. And we use that kind of wording to say, well, okay, the cabinet is 60 inches long, right? That's the measurement of the cabinet. But we also use that kind of terminology of measurement where we say, you know, that person doesn't, doesn't measure up. Right, and there, and that's the understanding that there is this standard of maybe character or expectation. Um, if you are applying for a job, right, you need to measure up to the requirements for that job on your resume. 
Um, and if you don't, then you don't measure up to the requirements, right? You don't meet that criteria. Uh, that, is, that was how this Greek word was used as well. So it was used in, in a metaphoric, a symbolic kind of a meeting um, where it was a reed that was a unit of, of measure and, and therefore it had the symbolic meaning of uh, a standard or a norm. Now this is used in Galatians chapter 6 here. It says, those who will walk by this rule Peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. So that word there, rule, is the word canon. That's where we get our word canon from. So you can see how it's used, right? Uh, it was used uh, also of a, of a rule in grammar. So there are specific rules when it comes to language. And that rule, those rules of grammar, you know, that you maybe need to have a predicate in the verb and a subject or an object, right, in, in grammar, for you grammar geeks, uh, there are certain expectations that are needed to, to be met to make it a complete sentence. Same idea here. It would be used the same way, a canon or a norm. This word was often used of a table of dates, a list of books, a standard of ethics, a standard of art, or a standard of literature. And specifically here, we're looking at that particular use of a list of books. So the canon is this list of books that we call the Holy Scriptures. That's what canon is. Now, there's a theological understanding of canon that might help, might help this morning for you. It, it meant a ruler standard uh, for, for anything, hence a rule of faith, right? Theologically, uh, in the context of a church, it's the rule of faith or a standard of faith. We see this in Jude 3. It says, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints. So there is this faith, right? This faith, which was once for all handed down, meaning that there is this body of doctrine, right? The faith, this, this teaching of Scripture that is self-contained, and that is what we received and what we hand down to the next generation of saints and from generation to generation. We don't add to that standard. We don't add to the canon as time goes on. It's, it's the faith that we are just simply given the responsibility and stewardship of handing down to the next generation of saints. All right. Any, any questions at this point about the idea of a canon? All right. So this canon, the canon of Scripture that we have, the 66 books of the Bible, was discovered by men. Discovered by men. Not determined. Maybe I can have a blank page here. So it's discovered. 
not determined. It was discovered by men, not determined. So the, the Holy Scriptures, what is and isn't Scripture, was not determined by men, but rather discovered. What does that mean? Well, we can say it this way. It was perceived. And not produced. So this goes back to a wording that we should be familiar with by, the, by this time in this, uh, in this equipping hour. Who produced the word of God? God, right? And what, what's the... What's the uh, doctrinal understanding of that. How do, how do we know that? What's the word that we use for uh, produced by God? Inspired. Yeah, inspired by God. Produced by God. So this is, this is talking about inspiration. You see here? So we understand that, the, that Scripture is Scripture because it was inspired by God. It's outside of man, right? That, that, uh, that reality that this is God's Word is apart from any man or institution. No man or institution says or, or excuse me, grants the reality that these Books are scripture. That doesn't come from man. That reality of it being the word of God comes from God alone. What man does is we simply discover or perceive or observe that reality. Okay? This is how the canon has come to be. It was perceived by men, not produced by men. R.C. Sproul says it well. I'll read a quote says, the church is indeed active in the historical process of canon formation, meaning who, who decides what is and what isn't scripture, right? Apocrypha or, or not, or um, the uh, shepherd of Hermes or not, right? The church is indeed active in the historical process of canon formation, making that list of Bible books. But the crucial point is that the church neither creates nor validates the canon. The canon has prior authority and validity. So before the canon is, is uh, listed by men, before it, has, it comes in contact with men, as it were, it has already this authority and validity. It is validly the word of God already. What the church does, R.C. Sproul goes on to say, what the church does in the historical process of canon development, developing that list, is to receive it, acknowledge it to be the truth of God, to show reverence to it, and to give unhesitating assent to it. That's our role. So no human or human institution uh, is the final say of what is canon and what is not. 
It is canon whether we believe it or not. Because it is God's word. That reality is outside of any uh, counsel or any human understanding. So, going back here to, to this reality of inspiration. Inspiration is what determine canonicity. In, inspiration, the, the fact that God produced the Bible, is, that is what determines what is canon, what is in that list of, of the Bible. The, um, also, one, one more note. The authority of the church is based on Scripture. And the Scripture's authority was not based on the church. What do I mean? Scripture gives authority to the church and to the leaders of the church, the elders of the church. And Scripture gives authority to the church to be salt and light. It uh, gives authority to uh, the members of the church to be judges of the earth, that we will judge angels. That authority, uh, the, the authority to uh, determine who is and is not a believer by the process of church discipline. That's part of the process of church discipline. That's where it leads is we cannot affirm your faith. Right? That's the end of church discipline. The prayer is before church discipline runs its course, that person is restored. That's the true purpose. But if that is not achieved, then the end of church discipline is you're not a Christian. And the church has the authority given by Christ, given by God, to say that you're not a Christian. You might think you are, but you're not because you have not repented and so we excommunicate you. That's actually what the church, what church discipline ends up doing. That is a level of authority, right? That authority is given by Scripture. Okay? Now, what isn't reality is that the church has this authority and thus authoritatively decides what is Scripture and is not. Do you see the difference? Scripture gives authority to the church. The church does not give authority to Scripture. The, church, the church's role is not to say, because we decide, we have this perfect understanding, this is Scripture, this is not Scripture. That is not the church's role. The church's role is in submission to the Word of God, to acknowledge the Word of God as the Word of God, not to determine what is word or scripture or not. See the difference? I'm trying to say it different ways so that we can get it at different angles and understand it. J.I. Packer says it better than I can, so I'll just read him. The church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity by his work of creation. And similarly, he gave us the canon, the holy scriptures, by inspiring the individual books or producing the individual books that make it up. So you see, 
Isaac Newton, because he recognized and gave a formula to gravity and, 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 and described and named gravity, gravity, he didn't create it, right? He didn't make gravity. He simply recognized it. That's our relation to Scripture. That's the church's relation to Scripture. We didn't make Scripture. It's not our responsibility to, to determine the canon or to, to have that final say of what is Scripture and what is not. We simply observe and recognize. So the canon is perceived, recognized, not created by the church. So the inspiration of Scripture was recognized as having given, excuse me, the inspiration of Scripture was recognized as giving to the Scripture a unique, self-authenticating, readily discernible quality. There is something about the Word of God, isn't there, Christian, that you just know it's the Word of God. There is a self-authenticating, self-vindicating aspect of the Word of God. That is how we perceive. That is how we observe the gravity, as it were. It's unique. It validates itself. Scripture, since it is God-breathed, is self-revealing, self-authenticating, and in short, it possesses the same qualities as God himself. Right? This makes sense because it comes from him. Right? So by definition, the person, the presence, and the power of God possesses and manifests this unique self-authenticating majesty, which needs no outside authentication. Right? We don't decide who God is and who he isn't. Right? We don't describe what he is like and what he is not like. If you have a Jesus or a God uh, who, excuse me, if you decide, if you get to decide your kind of Jesus and your kind of God that you will worship, which is what a lot of people today do, because we live in a self-centered society, you have not, you are not worshiping the true God. You're worshiping an idol, and often it's an idol of yourself. But with God. He has this self-authenticating majesty, glory, and quality about him. He doesn't need us to authenticate him, right? Let me give you some examples. We'll show you how this is true of God, and then we'll transfer to how this is true of the Bible. In Matthew 27, 54... This is uh, at, at the end of the crucifixion where, the, where Christ has been on the cross for some time and the, there's been darkness and earthquakes and the, and the Lord Jesus Christ handed over his spirit to God, the Father. After, all, after seeing all of this, right, just observing, there's this centurion that's standing by and it says the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus when they saw the earthquake and the things, all the things that were happening, became very frightened. And they said, truly, this was the Son of God. So he doesn't become the Son of God because they say it, 
right? He was the Son of God already. What was their role here? Just to what? Witness to it. To observe the reality that this is the Son of God. It's the same thing with God himself. We'll see this as we go along in Exodus, in Exodus 8.19, where it says, The magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God, when they were beginning to see uh, the miracles of God and God's power through Moses. They said, This is the finger of God, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them, as the Lord had said. So these magicians of Pharaoh observe the power and glory of God through these miracles. And they said, this is the act of God. This is the finger of God. We see God at work here. Something that is happening that is greater than us. This is not just mere magic. This is the finger, very finger of God. And this was their response to all the miracles that God did through Moses and, and Clearly, God's power, His majesty, is self-authenticating, right? They didn't need to have a debate about this. They didn't need to have a consensus. Apart from their uh, recognition, this was the power of God at work. They simply recognized it. God, in His power and majesty, is self-authenticating self-revealing so the same self-revealing self-authenticating majesty that resides in the character and nature of god resides in the god-breathed scriptures therefore the councils of the church throughout history did not decide or produce the scripture what the councils did in part was was essentially deal with heretics who denied the inspiration of certain books. That's what they were dealing with. That's why they made the list. It wasn't that they were searching for the Bible somewhere. They had it all along, but there were heretics in the early church that were saying, well, this is Scripture too, and that's Scripture too, and those books that you like that teach something we don't like, those are not Scripture. And so you had these false teachers, these heretics, spreading uh, this, this confusion about what is Scripture. And so that's what gave birth to these councils, these meetings of church leaders in the early church that determined, okay, this is Scripture. We all agree. Them making that list is not when Scripture became Scripture. It was always Scripture. They just had to make a list to protect from heresy. And in the process of making that list, they were simply observing the power of God through the word. And there were other writings that did not have that self-authenticating power. And so they denied those. And it wasn't just these men, just a, you know, a, a small group of men that made this determination. They were just observing what had been happening for a, a few hundred years already in the life of the church. So actual churches gave, that, gave uh, or observed that self-authenticating quality of Scripture. All right.
there's this long quote by Calvin that I have. It's really good, but it'll just it'll do more harm than good at this point, I think. <laughs> so how did we get the canon? So here, here's where it gets even more classroom. How do we get this? I'm just going to go through this, okay? Uh, before, before I do, do we have any questions or any thoughts at this point? All right. The history here. How did we get the canon? So, we're just going to kind of have a brief overview of the life of Scripture in the life of the early church. So what we see from early manuscripts, from early documentation in the very early church, we have quotations in other writings that aren't Scripture. We have quotations that are taken from our New Testament. Many quotations were were taken from the New Testament, and they were cited in those other documents, those other letters or books that were written in the early church. They They were quoted with this implication of authority that... The, essentially, they're saying the Bible says this, you got to do it, right? And they were quoting Scripture, just like what we do today, right? These writings that quoted Scripture and treated it as authoritative uh, are found in the writings of Clement in uh, 35, or well, he was born 35 to 99 AD, so that's very early. That's during the time of the Apostles. In his writings, Ignatius, who, who died in 108 A.D., so he also lived during the time of the apostles and his disciples. Polycarp, uh, in, who died in 155 A.D., Papias, who died in 163 A.D., Justin Martyr, who died in 165 A.D., as well as others. These are some of the key ones, and they had a lot of these quotes from our New Testament. They were quoting our New Testament as Scripture, as authoritative, as the Word of God. Very early, even during the life of the authors that wrote 1 Corinthians, for example. So the author of 1 Corinthians was alive, still, and... Other people alive at the same time, we have documentation that they quoted 1 Corinthians, for example, and they quoted it as Scripture, as authoritative, as the Word of God. So it didn't take long. Early church leaders recorded or they listed the books of the Bible, especially regarding the New Testament, because by the time of the New Testament early church, the Old Testament was pretty well solidified as far as what is and isn't is not canon and we'll get into that a little bit more in a bit hopefully most of these lists as i mentioned before were intended to counter against the false canons the false lists of scripture created by other early church leaders who were false teachers like marcion marcion had these extra lists or extra books in his list of what was scripture he took out what we understand as scripture in his list, and he was teaching false things. But it was not until the middle of the 4th century, so around 350 AD, 
it, until that point that the official deliberation and documentation was taken to settle once and for all what was true scriptural canon. So this list, or the books that you have in, in your Bible in front of you, that list didn't get solidified, as it were, uh, until around 350 AD. Now, why did it take so long? Well, what was happening in the early life of the church? Persecution. Yeah, persecution. From 30 AD to 311 AD, Christians suffered ongoing, widespread, violent persecution. So they had no time to sit down and have a meeting. It, they were running for their lives. Literally, they were running for their lives. And they didn't have time to sit down and, and, and have a debate and iron these things out. I say that because uh, unbelievers and people who criticize the Scripture will say, well, you know, your Bible didn't become a Bible until 350 A.D., so that just, you know, it's, it's all man-made, obviously. Well, no, it, it was always Scripture. They had this, but they were just, as it were, running with the scrolls, hiding from cave to cave, trying to save their life. They were a little busy, exactly. So, nonetheless, when things calmed down, when they were given favor by the government and not persecuted, in 363 A.D., the Council of Laodicea listed all of the present New Testament books that we have except for Revelation. But then Athanasius of Alexandria, uh, a few years later in 367 A.D., he cited all 27 books of the New Testament canon. And then the Third Council of Carthage in 397 included all of the present books of the canon that you have before you today. That's when it was finally ironed out. They took a long time to do these things, and rightly so. So the councils, these councils, they formalized the canon to settle questions about a few debated books, which were already widely accepted. It wasn't like they were searching for the Bible. The, the crux of the issue were these very few books. Most of your New Testament, most of your Old Testament was accepted as Scripture and had been for ages by that time. There were, these councils were particularly debating these few books of the New Testament, whether some were in or some were out. The council recognized what, what was already true by consensus in order to, to put the issue of heretical rejection books to an end. That's what they were trying to do was to get rid of the heresy. So, all to say that the Bible consists of 66 books that are divided into two sections. The Old Testament has 39, and the New Testament has 27. I encourage you to commit that to memory. It's worth memorizing. We should know our book, our, our book right? We should know our Bible. We should know about it as well. 66 books, 39 in the old, 27 in the new. 
That is the Bible. So here we go into some scriptures. We're going to fly through some of these. How can we know what's canon? Any, any questions so far or thoughts? All right. How can we know what's canon? Well, beginning with the Old Testament. Old Testament authors acknowledge each other's writings as scripture. One example is in Joshua 1.8, where God says, speaking of not Joshua, but Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that book of the law, God says, you, Joshua, now that Moses has died, that book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. See, already, not much time has gone by. Not even a year has gone by since Moses has passed away. And now Joshua is given this charge to lead God's people, but he, he is given this charge as well to have the, the writings of Moses, the Pentateuch, the Torah, to have that be authoritative over the life of God's people. It's Bible, it's Scripture. And already, it's, it's authenticated in a matter of days, it seems like. Same thing where in Daniel 9.2, I won't read it, but Daniel refers to Jeremiah in Daniel 9.2. You should have these uh, verses written down there for you already. If you want to make notes, that's fine. In Jeremiah 26.18, he quotes Micah 3.12. So Jeremiah is quoting Micah as God's word, as scripture. And this happens in the Old Testament. We're going to see this happens in the New Testament. Also, in the Old Testament, regarding the Old Testament canon, the Old Testament people treated certain writings differently. They understood the writings of Scripture to be sacred and separate and set apart holy writings. For example... This is Moses speaking to the second generation of Israelites, the children of those that were uh, delivered from Egypt, their children. He is speaking to this whole new generation, and he's talking about himself. He, um, he says that he wrote on the tablets, or God wrote on the tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments, which the Lord had taken to you on the, the mountain has spoken to you on the mountain from the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly, and the Lord gave them to me. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put those tablets in the ark, which I made, and they're there as the Lord commanded me. So he says, that's what I did 40 years ago with your parents, and those same writings are still preserved in the ark today. So those writings were the word of God and still are the word of God today. And they're right there in the ark. So these writings of God, scripture, is treated differently. And we see this as well in 2 Kings, where it says, 
Hilkah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law, which is what we just looked at, right? The first five books of the Old Testament. I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord, in the temple. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan who read it. And we see this reformation happening when God's people return to Scripture. That's how it always is. You want reformation, you want revival, preach the word, be committed to the word, know the word, speak the word. That's the self-authenticating power of the word of God, right? But nonetheless, we see here the law of God was, had this special place in the house of the Lord, in the temple. It was treated differently than other writings in that time. It was kept in a specific place. It was preserved there and guarded and cared for there. They wouldn't do that with another writing that they didn't view as Scripture. Joshua 1.8, also, the book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, right? And, and notice, as I said before, the authority that it's supposed to have over the life of God's people. Deuteronomy 17 now it shall come to pass when he, when he, the king, sits on his throne, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, the king, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes. That's the king's responsibility. And saints, that doesn't change today. It's Biden's responsibility to know the word of God and to govern this nation according to God's standard. That was Trump's responsibility. That was Obama's responsibility. That was Bush's responsibility. But by and large, they failed. They have failed. They are the hand of God. Government is the institution of God, and it is their responsibility, like it is the responsibility of all mankind to Abide and obey the word of God, right? It's, it's all man's responsibility, and it doesn't stop when you get to the top. That's my point. Because you're a king, because you're a president, doesn't mean that you're in some place of authority where you don't have to obey the Bible, right? Same thing for, for us men. If I can get pastoral for a second, right? For us men, you, because you have this role of authority in the home, doesn't mean that you, that you are above the word of God. We sin too, right? And so we need to be humble as men, as leaders. Kings were subject to the scriptures. There was an understanding that there were some writings that are scripture and others that are not. There was a limit to what is scripture, what is canon. There is an exclusivity to what is truly the word of God. This is what brings us now to the Apocrypha. What about the Apocrypha? Oh boy. What about the Apocrypha? Well, to be short, Christ never quoted it and he never recognized it. Matthew 23, 35, for one example, where he says, so that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. 
Uh, also in Luke eleven forty nine to 51, he says the same thing. Christ speaks of the blood of all the prophets. And he starts with Abel and he ends with Zechariah. So if there are prophets after Zechariah who were martyred, which according to the Apocrypha there were, why didn't Jesus mention them if they were truly prophets of God? If he says from the first to the last, it's like saying from Genesis to Revelation, from the first to the last, and if he starts with Abel and ends with Zechariah, then it means that there's no prophets after Zechariah until John the Baptist. It makes sense. Zechariah is the last prophet in the last book of the Hebrew Old Testament, which is 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament. And Zechariah is the last prophet in the last book. So that's what Christ is saying. From the first one, Abel, to Zechariah, the last one. You, you Israelites have been murdering and killing God's God's. Uh, heralds, God's messengers. So in short, Christ left no place nor gave even indirect support to the Apocrypha. At that point, it should settle the issue, but for some it doesn't. So I'll mention a little bit more. The church never had anything, anything, anywhere even approaching any consensus or agreement in the acceptance of the Apocrypha until 1563 A.D. There was only consensus, quote-unquote, until the Council of Trent in 1563 A.D. If it took that long to recognize when you've had other councils before, then doesn't that show that there is severe question and 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 doubt as to whether the Apocrypha truly is Scripture. On top of that, there are false teachings in the Apocrypha. And I have the quotes there, or the, uh, the sightings there. I'll just list them. In the Apocrypha, Judith calls Nebuchadnezzar the king of the Assyrians. He wasn't the king of Assyrians. He was the king of the Babylonians. In Tobit, it's taught that fish liver keeps demons away. In Wisdom 7.17, it says, it suggests at least that the creation of the world came from pre-existing matter, not out of nothing, like Genesis 1 describes. Uh, in Tobit 1 and 14, Tobit seems to claim that he had a 200-year lifespan. Uh, in 2 Maccabees, there are, there's this teaching of prayers for the dead, where the rest of Scripture clearly does not teach that. And at that point, it is appointed for, for man to, for man once to die, and after that comes what? Judgment, not prayers. There's no uh, deliberation. There's no lobby. There's no uh, hearing um, or any um, period of time where we can do anything to change the destination of that soul that has died. And lastly, in Tobit 12, salvation, it says, comes through the giving of offerings. Giving of offerings is said to contribute towards the salvation of a soul. That is wrong. That is heresy. So with those things, it's clear that 
the Apocrypha is not Scripture. Now, there may be some things in the Apocrypha that are encouraging because they were written during the time of God's people, for God's people, but it's not Scripture. It's not authoritative. It's, it's, it's in a different class. In what sense? You mean... Uh, Yes, yes. So it's historical in that the uh, writers, um, we can document their lives. And, you know, the Jewish people, Israelites, have, have done that. They've documented the reality of these people's lives. But, but uh, the claims that are made by these people, there are some claims that are wrong. But then there are other parts of their writings that totally align with Scripture. And from, for what it's worth... It might be encouraging, but you got to be careful because it does have these false teachings. Okay? Now, New Testament. The New Testament canon was anticipated by Jesus Christ. There was an, this anticipation when he says in John 14, 26, when he says, The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. He will teach you all things, notice. And in John 16, 13, but we, when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. So all things, all the truth. There is this, under, there is this communication by Christ where he tells his, his disciples, who will be the apostles and the authors of the New Testament scripture, that the Holy Spirit, when he comes, he will tell you everything. Everything. There will be a completeness, a finality to what he will give you. It's not that he will begin to explain things to you or he will begin revelation. No, he will reveal everything, all the truth. That is all that is required, all that I am going to give. Uh, it was asserted that this reality that, that the New Testament writings our scripture was asserted by the apostles, Ephesians. Uh, I don't have that right now. Okay, here we go. Uh, first, Second Timothy, Second Timothy one thirteen, retain the standard of sound words, which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. See this this standard. There's this canon. There's this there's this uh, this body of work, and it's exclusive. There's a standard of sound words, and that is what you retain, not other things. You don't add to it. You can't retain something if you let some of it go or if you add to it. That's not retaining. This was the expectation. Uh, again, Jude 3, uh, the, the, the faith, the, the standard, the body of work, which was once for all, right? Once for all. Handed down to the saints. It's final. It's complete. There's no more handing down. There's no more adding. This was the expectation of the New Testament authors, that there was a limited, finite group of writings that was Scripture and were to be preserved. All other writings, though encouraging and maybe helpful, are not Scripture and are not what the church is responsible for handing down and preserving. Just in passing, uh, 
a collection of writings of the New Testament was made when the authors of the New Testament wrote the New Testament. There is this uh, indication that they could have written other things. And we see this in John 20, 30. I, I could have written other things. There's a lot of other things that Jesus taught and, and did. I could have included, but I, but I only included these things with a specific view in mind. And so there were some things left out and some things included. Um, in, the, in the life of the early church, it's really interesting that when a New Testament author would write scripture, would write a letter to a church, he told them that this is for the whole church and not just for your church, but for the church down the road. And so spread this to the community. Spread this to the whole household of God that isn't just you. So this, it's this implication that this letter is Scripture and it's authoritative for the whole church, not just for you guys. First uh, Thessalonians 5.27, Paul says, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter read to all the brethren. In Colossians 4.16, when this letter is read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And, and you, for your part, read my letter that is coming from Laodicea. So there are these other, other writings that are being circulated, right? So there's a letter from Laodicea that's coming to them. They send theirs to Laodicea, and it's all authoritative. So, the authors, even as they're writing, even as they're finishing up writing these letters, they understand this is self-authenticating, this is the Word of God. It's, it's actually amazing. They knew that in that moment. Some apostolic writings were recognized very early as belonging to the body of Scripture. As a matter of fact, all but five or to seven books in the early church were recognized immediately by the early church. Luke's gospel is quoted as scripture in 1 Timothy 5.18. Look what it says. The scripture says you shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. So scripture says, here's one thing that scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox. Here's another thing that scripture says. The labor is worthy of his wages, right? Scripture says both of these things. One of them is from Deuteronomy 25. You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. And the other is from Luke 10.7. The labor is worthy of his wages. So the writing of Luke, already in the early church, by the time Paul is writing 1 Timothy, he understands the gospel of Luke as Scripture. Amazing. 2 Peter 3.15 and 16 says, Regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. So what did Paul write to you? As also in all his letters he wrote to you in his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand, which is encouraging to us, right? I don't... There are difficult things in Paul's writings which the untaught and unstable distort and, they, and they, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. Notice the wording here. 
the rest of the scriptures. So he's saying that the untaught, the unstable, distort scripture. And they, they, the untaught, the unstable in the faith distort Scripture in the Old Testament, for example, and the rest of Scripture like Paul's writings. See that? He's including Paul's writings in this body of the Scriptures. Amazing. And Peter recognized that very early in the church. Now, most of the other Books of the New Testament were recognized very early. And the, these writings of the New Testament commanded authority. They were considered to be inspired scripture, and as such, they were binding upon the church. Now, I just want to close by reading a few verses. How can we be confident that that canon is what we have today? Ephesians 1.11. It really boils down to this. We can talk about the science of copying letter to letter, document to document. We can go into all that stuff. But if you want to be that nerdy, then just go read a book on it, all right? And you can come to me and I can refer you to some. But uh, it really just boils down to this, our confidence in God to preserve his word. If he gave it to us, he'll preserve it. Ephesians 1.11, we, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. That's the kind of God that we have, Christians. He's the kind of God who works everything after the counsel of his will. He decides something. He, he has, there's this counsel of his will, right? There's this determination, this predetermination. God works it out. He accomplishes what he determines. Proverbs 16, 33 the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. God is sovereign over the roll of the dice. Certainly, He's sovereign over the scribes and the copying and the trans and the um, transmission of Scripture through the ages to us. Job forty-two two. I know that you, God, can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So, if God wants you to have the Bible, His Word then he won't be thwarted in that. And is he the kind of God that would want his children to have his word? Absolutely. So nothing can thwart that. Last one. Jeremiah thirty-two seventeen. Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth. By your great power and by your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. Even preserving scripture unto us thousands of years later. He's powerful, and we can trust him that what we have in our hands is his word, and we can love it, cherish it, and live by it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for your great care and your love for us, that you would exercise your power not only to give us your word, your revelation, but to preserve it through the ages for us. We thank you, Almighty God, for your power and your care both intermingled with each other, your, your might and your mercy. Lord, we are in awe of your greatness. We are in incredible gratitude to your kindness towards us. 
Lord, may we, understanding what Scripture is and the great care that you have taken in regards to Scripture, may we treasure it as well. May we treasure Scripture as you do. We pray this to be true in the life of your, of your saints and your church. In Christ's name, amen. Amen.